Harvard Divinity School. CSWR List Lecture, Kabbalistic Neoplatonism, Divine Emanation and Mystical Integration, September 28, 2023. Welcome, everyone. Uh, good evening. My name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here at the CSWR, and I feel like I'm standing in front of my father's podium. Um, we've got two podiums going because Adam is tall. Um, <laughs> So here, I thought I was tall until I approached this podium. Um, so we're very uh, happy to be hosting the Center's annual List Lecture in Jewish Studies in person again this year. Uh, this is the second time we've been able to do so since the pandemic. Uh, recent List Lecturers have included our very own Shul Magid, who is in the second row over there to the left. He was at this podium just last year. Um, other recent list lecturers have included Elliot Wolfson, Guy Strumsa, Vivian Liska, and Sarah Hammerschlag. <laughs> For those of you who are joining by Zoom, we have a, a lo loose apple uh, on the loose. Yeah, okay. It <clears throat> seems it seems laden with symbolism, but. Um, <laughs> So we are honored this evening to add Professor Adam Afterman to that distinguished list of list lecturers. Dr. Adam Afterman is a professor at the Department of Jewish Philosophy and Talmud at Tel Aviv University, specializing in Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah. He's a senior scholar and director of the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue and a senior fellow at the, am I saying this right, Kogud? Kogud Center for the renewal of Jewish thought at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. His early work focused on the notion of devakut, or cleaving, in Jewish mysticism. And he published an important article in 2013 in the Journal of Religion entitled, From Philo to Plotinus, the Emergence of Mystical Union, in which he argued that Plotinus's famous account of mystical union, which was to have such an enormous influence in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam had an important precedent and possible source in Philo of Alexandria's allegorical commentary on the Bible. He carried that work forward into his 2016 monograph entitled, And They Shall Be One Flesh on the Language of Mystical Union in Judaism, published by Brill. That book offers an extensive study of mystical union and spiritual embodiment in Judaism. Professor Afterman was here five years ago, uh, almost to the day, uh, and gave a lecture on his latest project, then in its early stages, on the role of the Holy Spirit in Kabbalah. And my understanding is that this lecture this evening fits into that broader project. This evening, Professor Afterman will address the profound impact of Neoplatonism on Kabbalah, the mystical trend of Jewish mysticism. While its impact on the development of a new form of mystical religiosity of communion and union mystica is relatively well known, he will focus on another critical development. Afterman will argue that through an interpretation of Neoplatonic emanation in terms of substantive intra-divine emanation, the Kabbalist developed for the first time a Jewish godhead. Professor Afterman, thank you for accepting our invitation to deliver this year's List Lecture. We're honored to have you. 
This podium is yours. Thank you, Charles, for such a nice uh, introduction and for this uh, kind invitation. It's always a great uh, honor and pleasure to be back here at the center and uh, Harvard Divinity School. And uh, I see many uh, familiar and friends, faces and friends here in the, the crowd. And uh, yeah, what I'm going to talk about today is really trying to put together some of the work I've been doing over the last uh, possibly uh, 10 to 15 years. <laughs> so you can put the next slide. Thank you. Uh, Jerusalem and Athens, a tale almost as old as these civilizations themselves. Their first synthesis occurred in the writings of Philo, forgotten by a rabbinic Jewish world until the Renaissance, and their second during the 10th century and onwards in the Islamic Arabian Peninsula. The second attempt met with greater success, but also greater resistance, as may be attested by the enormous opposition that Moses Maimonides' grand synthesis met. Greek wisdom by most medieval Jewish rabbinic Jews was seen as, at best as one option, but not authoritative, and at worst, heretical. Nevertheless, the work of Maimonides and his predecessors was still absorbed by much of rabbinic Judaism, including, somewhat surprisingly, Kabbalistic writings. Perhaps the most crucial idea incorporated by medieval rabbinic Judaism was philosophical monotheism. The encounter with Kalam thought and its emphasis on Tawhid led Jews in the 10th century to a more philosophical understanding of God's oneness, an incorporeal and transcendent oneness not subject to any category of change. This conception became so foundational to Judaism, even read as the intention of the most important biblical verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that later Jewish thinkers identified it as the original Jewish idea that was later absorbed and adopted by other, other monotheistic faiths. Hand in hand with philosophical monotheism, considered now the foundation of Jewish thought and adopted by almost all medieval Jews, was the introduction of some form of another of the theory of emanation, as portrayed, portrayed in Neoplatonic and Neoestatean sources. The Jewish philosophical adaptation of emanation was understood as a process that produced a metaphysical emanation, leading to the creation of a physical existence. This emanative process, as it manifested first in creation and continuously through the ongoing emanation of metaphysical overflow, in prophecy and providence was described using the Arabic uh, term faich and translated as the Hebrew word shefa, flow or flux. In its initial introduction, Plotinus, this process was understood in terms of how the intellect and soul emerge from the one and how those entities emanate further beings and eventually existence itself. Key metaphors utilized by Plotinus were those of emanated rays of light and unending streams of water emanated substances that do not distract from their source. He also offered the beautiful metaphor of the life of the great tree flowing through it from top to bottom. Yet the question remained for later interpreters and philosophers as to the precise nature of these metaphors. What is the nat nature of this emanation and overflow? Is it a metaphor for realization of divine potency or an actual divine substance or any kind of substance? 
We'll explore these different interpretations, the former in the writings of Maimonides and the later in those of several early Kabbalists. So we can next move on. Thank you. Moses Maimonides. The notion of metaphysical overflow is critical in Maimonides' theory of the interface between the metaphysical and physical realms and in analyzing human perfection, divine providence, and prophecy. He discusses the overflow several times in his Guide for the Perplexed, as he wrote, and this is the first quote, as the overflow from the deity and from the intellects has been mentioned repeatedly in our discourse, we must explain to you its true reality, I mean that of the subject that is designated as overflow. He continues and writes, this term, I mean overflow, is sometimes also applied in Hebrew to God, likening him to an overflowing spring of water. For nothing is more fitting as a simile to the action of one that is separate from matter than this expression, I mean overflow. For we are not capable of finding the use, the true reality of a term that would correspond to the true reality of this notion. So we see that he doesn't have a term to analyze the impact of the intellect, but only a metaphor. For Maimonides, the overflow metaphor describes how the non-corporal active intellect affects the material realm, including the human mind. Importantly, this overflow is not understood as a divine substance or a substance at all, but rather as a radiation of power that retains the unchanging character of the active intellect and God's oneness in a philosophical sense, while discussing the relation between the metaphysical and physical realms. The overflow is a conceptual bridge used to overcome the gap between these realms, the material and the noetic. But for Maimonides and other Jewish philosophers, it did not erase this gap. It merely explained how divine providence and prophecy worked through the agency of the active intellect. Throughout his philosophical treatise, Maimonides used free metaphors for the agency of the overflow of the active intellect. Water, light, and spirit identifying the noetic overflow with the Hebrew term Ruach HaKodesh, translated as the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to talk about Shefa in Kabbalistic thought. The alternative to Maimonides' rendering of metaphysical overflow is found in the early Kabbalah of the 13th century. In these diverse writings, the Kabbalists developed theories of intra-divine emanation an overflow of divine substance, which were critical in developing their unique Kabbalistic systems and mystical paths. Many of these discussions include explicit Neoplatonic elements and concepts related to emanation drawn directly from Neoplatonic sources known to them. The sources offer a unique synthesis between biblical and rabbinical concepts with the general structure of me and mechanism of emanation and overflow. In my view, the outcome of this synthesis is a new form of Jewish discourse, although its content may seem ancient. These theories of Kabbalistic Godhead based on intra-divine emanation are a dramatic innovation compared to early known Jewish sources. And they are remarkable, especially considering the background of philosophical monotheism that I just mentioned before. It comes after the philosophical monotheism. They shared. In this critical development, the one God was perceived as emanating his essence into a hierarchy of dynamic forces or qualities that share the same substance as the divine source. 
In this theory, the Kabbalistic, the very substance of God is imminent in the Godhead and continues to emanate within creation of man. Although, this div although the divine is ever-changing, it always remains the same. Therefore, its internal unity is left intact. This theory, therefore, allows the divine to go beyond itself and reach and embody the Jewish individual and community and allow them to participate in the inner divine life, clinging to the divine via his overflow, his Holy Spirit. This theory of substantive emanation allowed the expansion of God into a Godhead for the first time, I argue, in the Jewish tradition. While the role of Neoplatonism shaping early Kabbalah has long been recognized in scholarship, its impact on the formation of the Kabbalistic Godhead and the co component of Shefa as divine overflow has not been fully recognized. And the significance of the overflow Shefa and its identification in most Kabbalistic sources with the term Holy Spirit still lacks a comprehensive analysis. Today I would like to offer some preliminary remarks concerning the role of divine overflow in Kabbalistic thought. This element continues to flow from God through and from the Godhead to the rest of existence and the mystics. This overflow, which is one of God, yet overflowing from God, is a critical feature in the mystical systems developed by the early Kabbalists. Both of these ideas, the emanation of the Godhead and the divine overflow, were new to the Jewish tradition and are the fruit of its encounter with Neoplatonism. Gershom Sholem, who you can see here, the founder is recognized usually as the founder of the study of uh, academic study of Kabbalah, who didn't deny the general importance of Neoplatonism to the emergence of Kabbalah, nevertheless downplayed its role in shaping the Kabbalistic Godhead and insisted that it was instrumental mainly in the development of the most transcendent aspect of the Godhead and the subdivine phase of emanation but not the intra-divine phase of the Godhead, not the Sfirot. Sholem noted that the Kabbalistic developed an intra-divine theory of emanation, which differs from the classic Neoplatonic theory of metaphysical emanation. This proves, he argued, that the Kabbalist Godhead did not draw upon Neoplatonism. Furthermore, he insisted that the Kabbalistic theory of divine overflow was not to be interpreted as an emanation of divine substance, but as a metaphor or discourse of power. He wrote, for example, and you can uh, change the, the slide. Uh, the first quote is not there, I'll just read it for you. One doubts whether the, whether the Neoplatonic image of emanation adequately expresses their actual intentions. Because there are the language, the, the writings itself are full of Neoplatonic terms and uh, references and metaphors. But he says it didn't reflect their intentions. And this is the most famous uh, quote that you have here. Likewise, in his uh, 10 unhistorical aphorism on Kabbalah, he wrote the quite amazing quote, as the actual misfortune yeah, of the Kabbalah, one ought to consider the doctrine of emanation. The insights of the Kabbalah concern the structure of what exists. Nothing will be more disastrous than to confuse the connections of this structure with the doctrine of emanation. And he has, he writes about it, he, he's quite obsessed about this topic, and he writes about it a lot in different sources 
against misunderstanding the Kabbalistic discourse as imminative and substantively imminative. Sholem explicitly rejects the theory that the emanation of the Sefirot was that of divine substance. But rather, he claims once and again that it was simply the power of the emanator that goes forth in the emanative process, a position that reminds me of, the, of Maimonides' view that was just briefly presented. Sholem's antagonistic attitude towards Neoplatonic emanation was due to his belief that Kabbalistic doctrine could not abide by a wholly pantheistic outlook. Sholem assumed that substantive emanation in a Neoplatonic uh, form leads to pantheism, as in the case also of Unia Mystica, stipulating that Jewish mystics aboded, avoided both for theological reasons. And uh, you mentioned before, I also argue about you know, of Unia Mystica, and it's not only me, this is already clear that Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism does have here and there uh, elements of Unia Mystica. In the case of divine emanation, he invested a significant effort to argue that the Kabbalistic theory of emanation is non-substantial. The most critical outcome of this approach was the misrepresentation of the role of the divine overflow as a crucial element of the Kabbalistic Godhead and its unity including its identification as the Holy Spirit. In a non-substantive understanding of the emanation, one cannot fully account for the complex and rich role of the Holy Spirit in diverse Kabbalistic systems, as will be demonstrated in a few sources in a minute. To make things even more complicated, Sholem, who ignored the Holy Spirit in Kabbalah totally, believed that the Kabbalistic Godhead was a unique outcome of a combination of the Neoplatonic transcendent God and the Gnostic Jewish tradition that stood for the positive aspects of the Godhead and its overflow. This tradition arrived, he argued, from the Orient and somehow surfaced in Northern France at the end of the 12th century. This theory, never proven, was presented, for example, by a student, Isaiah Tishbi. So this is just one example of this uh, theory. At the very beginning of the new speculative of Kabbalah and Sof, which represents the god of Plotinus and his followers, was joined to a system of Sefirot, which was the Jewish version of Gnostic Pleroma, and so the Kabbalistic mystery of the divine comprising the hidden god and the revealed god came into being. Sholem's bias against Neoplatonic understanding of the imitative process that left, has left scholarship with a distorted understanding of this development. The much more straightforward explanation is that the early Kabbalists adopted an interpretation of Neoplatonic emanation and applied it first to an intra-divine stage similar to what we find in Christian and Islamic adaptations of Neoplatonism, such as found in Augustinian and Andalusian Sufi literature. One of the outcomes of this distorted outlook was misunderstanding the role of divine overflow in the Kabbalistic Godhead and mystical life. While scholarship has explored the terminology used to describe the Sefirot, the different powers in the Godhead, and their development from biblical and classic rabbinical literature until medieval Kabbalistic literature, how these Sefirot emanated from the divine substance and the nature of ongoing divine overflow, uh, especially that which continued to pass through the Sefirot and from then to the world, was generally ignored. For example, the same Tishbi in his systematic presentation of Kabbalistic doctrine 
discusses the overflow only as an instrument of divine providence, but not as a primary me mechanism of mystical integration between man and God. That's something I want to argue about today. Since Tishbi, some progress has been made in the works of Jonathan Garb and Chaviva Bedaya, which stand out in this regard. And I also want to mention here also Alexander Altman, that was here uh, in the States, who also wrote about the Neoplatonic context differently from Sholem, but he was uh, uh, less known than Sholem. It appears that the continued ignorance of the central role of the Holy Spirit in medieval Kabbalistic thought is driven by a deep anxiety of influence from Neoplatonism and it the frets and its frets of pantheism on the one hand, and also possibly Christianity on the other hand. Now that I have prefaced my remarks concerning the emergence of the Kabbalistic Neoplatonic Godhead, I would like to bring a few examples in which the role of the overflow as a divine substance cannot be denied, I argue, in early Kabbalah. So the first case is that of one of the first Kabbalists, I, I possibly even the, the first Kabbalist, Asher ben David, who was the first to articulate in writing a theory of the Godhead based upon a theory of its emanation from God. It's probably the first written articulated theory of emanation. Ben David began to identify the various Neoplatonic images of Shefa as water and light with the Hebrew terms power and blessing, koach and bracha, which also linked to the flow of water from its source, from the pool, from the brecha. Bracha and brecha, the overflow and its source and the pool are related. They play upon that and it's classic in Kabbalah. In a system Shefa, the overflow is the primary ontological, primary ontological reality and the Sfirot's foundation, which are, the Sfirot are only secondary to the flow and serve as vessels for this substantive divine emanation. He describes not only the emanation of divinity with these terms, but also the world's creation by corresponding between the six days of creation and the middle Sfirot. He wrote that everything was created in that time in potential, for it was encapsulated in, and I'm quoting, the flow of blessing, Shefa Abacha, which is from the source of life, and from the fountain that blesses everything every day, and at all times in order for them to exist. In a similar vein, he wrote that the, this blessing, which is the overflow, unites all of these attributes, all of these firot, it's a unitive power, just as the potency of the roots of the tree disseminates in its branches. So too the internal spirit flows through these attributes, and this spirit planted in them is called plantings. For all entities that are set in place and, do, and does not move and is never separated from there is called Planted. So he's talking about how these spirit are integrated into this overflow and united by this overflow. While previous scholarship stresses the instrumental understanding of the spirit in Asher's thought, with a renewed focus on the understanding of the Neoplatonic and the underpinning of Asher's emanation, there's a continuous flow in unity from the infinite, which is the source of blessing. Okay? Until these attributes, which are uh, considered as planted inside the divine, are considered one with the system. Furthermore, he stresses that the attributes are not separate from the divine, but are part of it. 
The unit development, I want to stress now a very important point, that this overflow is also the unit development of this system. The unit development of the structure was the utmost importance for all the Kabbalists, but is also critical, it has also critical implication. It might seem counterintuitive to uh, some of us, but it does not assume that the process of emanation and overflow in its interdivine phase contradicts God's fundamental unity and oneness. On the contrary, the overflow constitutes the unity and oneness of the organic Godhead. Since it is divine substance, which is always united with the divine, it project, projects or projects this unity into the, its recipients, including the spherot themselves, which vessels. Asha articulated a detailed theory in which the same divine flow, also identified by him as the Holy Spirit, reaches the mystic and induces a variety of revelations. So the spherot and man are the vessels that receive this flow. The next example, and we can move on to the slide, is uh, Moses Nachmanides, Ramban, one of the most important 13th century Kabbalists. In his commentary on Sefer Yetzirah, he presents the theory of the emanation of the Godhead and the human soul, all sharing one divine substance. He illustrates the emanation in pneumatic terms, beginning with the spirit breath of God. God first inhales, creating a vacuum into which he exhales the spherot, both created from and infused with his Holy Spirit. The spiritual overflow does not lose its divine nature. Rather, Nachmanides described it as being more refined. He talks about the Hebrew term duck, becomes more and more refined when it's closer to its source, and less refined, the further it is, but is always connected. The same spirit is what enters the individual through which they can embody the divine and unite with it, becoming an extension of the divine breath. Nachmanides also refers to the substance using the analogy of water, which can exist as ice, as water, as steam, yet all these forms retain the same fundamental identity as one substance. So he really stresses this uh, idea that it's one divine substance. So the this divine flow remains a divine substance, whether it's close to its source or fervor. It may change its form, but not its identity and unity with the divine. Thus, for Nachmanidi, God remains one, even though it is a complex unity. And again, I'm trying to uh, refer to this fact that Nachmanides is writing after Maimonides, after the philosophical monotheism was accepted as the foundational idea of Judaism. So how can the system of ten spherot, or whatever system you want, can be considered as one God? And I'm trying to argue that the system of the Shefa itself is the secret of the unity and oneness of this, these uh, Godheads. Okay. Nachmanides, the same Nachmanides, in a different context, also argues against the philosophical understanding of metaphysical emanation and overflow as holding back, implied by the Hebrew term atzilut. The philosophers viewed emanation as occurring outside of God, as a subdivine process, and therefore emanation implies which is emanated is not divine. Nachmanides offered an alternative Kabbalistic understanding as drawing Okay, drawing the divine substance uh, as an alternative to the philosophical understanding. It is their structural similarity that demanded his clarification. 
So here we see a Kabbalist that's fully aware of the philosophical structures, and he's trying to offer his own theory of emanation. It is also an essential significance for the status of the human soul. As for philosophers, and when I say philosophers, usually Maimonides, the human mind and soul are the final product of the subdivine emanation. But for Nachmanides, the human soul is part of the divine organism drawn from the same substance as the Godhead. The signif significance of this theory of emanation and, and its identification of the divine substance as the Holy Spirit, also Nachmanides shares that idea, emphasizes the Holy Spirit role as the infinite ground and source of the Godhead allowing the mystic to integrate with the Godhead while increasingly embodying the Holy Spirit. So here we're starting to talk about another uh, element in which the Holy Spirit is embodying the mystic and here we're reaching this idea of mystical integration. It's not only serving the unity of the Godhead, it's also serving the unity of man and God. Another example that's key for our, uh, you can move the slide, is the Zohar. Um, more than any Kabbalistic source, the Zohar is fascinating with divine emanation and overflow. The word Zohar itself means divine light. The mystical moments in the Zohar are rich when the divine system of powers, of spherot, or whatever, regain its inner unity and harmony. Consequently, the overflow flows from the Godhead's higher to lower vessels and reaches its human destination. In the Tsar, the overflow, which is also God's blessing, is linked with the mystery of God's unity in enacting through the sexual unification of God and the Shekhinah, which overflows onto the Kabbalists. The unification of the masculine and feminine powers allows the overflow originating from the higher sources of the Godhead to flow to the feminine lower power, the Shekhinah, and from her to her sons, the mystics participating with her union. This flow is the force of unity of the Godhead, the fruit of the unification in which the mystic participates and also has an active role in inducing. The intra and interunification of these divine entities is enacted through the individual's participation with the divine overflow, which remains united in all its manifestations. For example, through the recitation of Shema, the same verse I quoted at the beginning, the oneness of God is disclosed through the divine overflow that unites all. In other words, the divine oneness is drawn to the mystic by unifying the multiple divine elements, usually the masculine and feminine, and receiving the overflow, which is one with the unified God. A similar, and you can, similar dynamic, we're not going to read the source. This is a classic source from the Tsar talking about uh, what, the dynamics of uh, Shabbat, the Shabbat evening. There's a big mystery that the Zohar describes here. A similar dynamic is developed in the Zohar conception of Shabbat. At this time, harmony occurs within the divine and human realms. Therefore, the Jewish people receive even more of the divine overflow than during the days of the week. This state is referred to as the mystery of the one, in which the divine overflow unabstracted, descends from the highest source until the people of Israel, thereby including them within the divine unity. This unification is a process in which the masculine transmits the, the shefa called 
the mystery of the one upon the feminine, the Shekhinah, to which she is united with him. At the same time, the people of Israel receive from her the divine Shefa in the form of the Holy Spirit or the additional souls that they receive from above. This power that descends from above. The unity and oneness of God, which is the mystery of Shabbat, is experienced through this light spirit, which is the divine overflow that unites all. On the Shabbat, which corresponds to cyclical temporality, returning to the first days of creation and residing outside of history, the Jewish people participate in the mystery of the Holy Spirit bestowed on them as a collective. Now, the last case I want to bring, and I'm bringing very uh, central figures or sources from 13th century Kabbalah. So we had Asher ben David, Nachmanides, and the Zohar. Now we're going to talk about Avraham Abulafia. Okay, just uh, briefly. The last case I would like to explore briefly comes from a slightly different intellectual background than others. Avraham Abulafia, the founder, the famous founder of ecstatic Kabbalah. You can move on to 12. Abulafia was a student of Maimonides and other Jewish and Muslim philosophers. He wrote several Kabbalistic commentaries on the secrets of the Guide of Perplex. Unlike modern scholars, Abulafia recognized the centrality of Shefa, of flow, in Maimonides' Esoterica. For Abulafia, unlike Maimonides, the Shefa is not limited to the noetic mechanism of the active intellect but rather it is divine reality that exists beyond the metaphysical hierarchies. His mystical path is focused on the divine overflow as he develops a unique, what I call, theosophy of overflow without a theosophy of spherot. In contrast, the other Kabbalists, ones mentioned before, stress the need to generate unity in the Godhead, the spherot, to receive the overflow. Abulafi emphasized how the overflow is united and integrated, and therefore individuals may unite with the divine, divine flow through perfection of their imagination and intellect, but not necessarily by working and uniting the powers of the Godhead. The divine flow is the focus of his ecstatic integration with uh, the Godhead, leading to moments of ecstatic union with the unified flow. While I've shown, I hope, that overflow is a vital component of most medieval metaphysical and theosophical systems, Abulafia's insight is that these structures are not only originate with the Shefa, but are linguistic projections that create order, hierarchies, and casual relations between entities or powers in the overflow. So I'm, I'm going to try to explain. He has a sophisticated theory of the, that the, the, the overflow is the, the only thing that exists, and all the types of discourse are just attempts to describe the different uh, dynamics that happen between God and man. Abulafia, you can move on to the source. We're not going to read it. I just, uh, you can look at it. Uh, I'll just summarize the system. Abulafia argues that the various fields of language for example, Maimonides' metaphysics, or the Kabbalist theosophies of Sfirot, or even Christianity, picture identical dynamics within the divine overflow. While the divine Shefa lies beyond all metaphysical structures, and therefore beyond any specific discourse, including the Kabbalistic one, 
Since the mystical path is ultimately to reach the source of the overflow, the dynamic of self-realization is one of overcoming the many and often contradictory discourses of philosophy and religion by comprehending the common truths that the various discourses share and reach, and reach the ultimate reality that lies beyond all discourse. And, he, and you can see when this study, he's all the time identifying similar phenomena in the different discourse. The philosophers call this this, the Kabbalists call this this, the Bible calls it this. It's basically the same phenomena. This descending dynamic of overflow meets the ascending dynamic of human transformation and integration. Individual transformation is an ever-increasing fusion with this overflow, experienced as light and as Holy Spirit inducing various ecstatic experiences associated with prophecy. This dynamic reaches its ultimate end in the moment of ecstatic union in which the true unity and singularity of existence are experienced and when the structure of language and thought are shown to be merely nominalistic and dissolve into singular presence of the flow of the one God. So his system is really focused on this flow and uh, reaching at the end some kind of mystical union with this flow. So the concluding uh, remarks. And here I'm going to try and say a few more general, a bit general beyond uh, these examples. Early Kabbalah represents, in my eyes, a complex synthesis of Neoplatonic structures with biblical, rabbinic, and other Jewish sources and concepts. Some of them are medieval, pre-Kabbalah-like philosophy. Some of them are ancient, uh, and some of them are unknown yet. We don't know where they came from. The early Kabbalists absorbed the two Neoplatonic axes or pillars already developed in early Jewish philosophical sources, that of emanation and overflow, and that of spiritual return and integration, the two pillars, to the extent that they shaped a new chapter in the history of Jewish mysticism. The path of return internalized into the inner space of man, leading to states of mystical communion, dvikut, that you mentioned before, and mystical union on the one hand, and the introduction of emanation, and most importantly for me tonight, divine overflow on the other, marked a dramatic innovation in the perception of God and the understanding of religious transformation and perfection in the Jewish tradition. Through an interpretation of Neoplatonic emanation in terms of substantive intra-divine emanation, the Kabbalists developed for the first time a Jewish Godhead. This development included the introduction of the element of divine overflow associate, associated by most of them with the Holy Spirit that served a critical role in their mystical lives. For theological reasons, Sholem and some of his followers were ambivalent about the Kabbalistic reception of Neoplatonic theory of emanation. Particularly the substantive one. And when I, I'm saying ambivalent, I mean there's a lot of effort writing against this interpretation. While Shalom and his followers, most notably in this case, Joseph ben Shlomo, Yosef ben Shlomo, who was probably his most admired uh, student, categorically denied it. I argued for a substantive interpretation of different key Kabbalistic imminent 13th century sources 
And I hope I showed that it is the precise understanding that is found in primary Kabbalistic texts, and they are more properly understood in this manner. I mean, there's no way in my eyes that you can interpret any of these sources in a way that's not talking about an imitative, substantive emanation. Uh, it's just the way, I mean, you have to start arguing, no, they didn't mean what they wrote. No, they couldn't reach, you know, uh, Ben Shlomo even has a famous place where he said, no, he, the, he's talking about a 16th century Kabbalist, uh, Moshe, Moshe Cordovero, that's kind of continuing the same kind of Kabbalah. And he says, no, the fact that he's, he, there's no way he could say such an outrageous uh, theory so many times. So he doesn't mean what he said. He didn't mean what he wrote. So I think that the sources, wherever it's, and I'm just going to remind, just summarize again, Asher's understanding of divine essence and the spheroids subsumed within it, Nachmanides' discussion of the emanation of the spheroid through the divine breath and Holy Spirit, which is also the soul of the individual. So what does it mean? What is the soul? If it's, not, if it's not a substance coming from God, what is it? There's no way to understand this theory. The Zohar's conception of divine unification of God and Shekhinah and the link between the Jewish people and the Holy Spirit, or Abelafia's radical nominalistic understanding of metaphysical structures, both philosophical and Jewish, which collapse at the moment of mystical union. All of these sources, I argue, support this reading of emanation. Both Neoplatonic pillars of descent and ascent were first absorbed and developed in medieval Jewish philosophy, and only later by early Kabbalah. And this is a very important point in my eyes. The philosophical adaptation of both axes was limited to the metaphysical realm. In the case of the philosophical interpretation. The emanation and overflow were in the sub-divine realm and accordingly the dynamics of return and integration were limited to the metaphysical realm. For the early Kabbalists, the emanation and overflow are from and in, and in the divine. And this is the big difference. They jump one level above and they go from the metaphysical to the divine. And the same, and the mystical return and integration, accordingly, occur also in the divine realm. The Kabbalistic projection of the Neoplatonic structure of emanation on the divine carved the divine space with an overflow that absorbed a variety of Jewish terminology related to the divine majesty, without any of these terms becoming the exclusive terms or term accepted by all Kabbalists. That's why I'm always saying, it could be Shefa, it could be Bracha, it could be Ruch HaKodesh, it could be this Sfira, that Sfira. Anyone who knows these sources know that it's never determined 100% what's the proper term for any of these phenomena. So what I'm trying to say is it's the, the interdivine emanation created a space in which this, all these terms were absorbed. Shekhinah, Kavod, etc., etc. At the same time, the dynamics of return were internalized in an inner space, yet at the same time, and this is also a classic Neoplatonic move, leading to a gradual assimilation and integration with the divine realm and its overflow. This axis, which I only briefly touched upon today, was projected back into the biblical and rabbinical languages of communion, dvikut, union, intention, kavanah, and love, ava. The combination 
of overflow and communion, of Shefa and Vikut, Shefa and Vikut, or Ruach HaKodesh and Vikut, okay? There could be, could be either Shefa, Ruach HaKodesh, Bracha, Koach, and Vikut. This combination of overflow and communion marks the development of classic Kabbalistic systems, in my eyes. The outcome of this Kabbalistic form of Neoplatonism was the birth of a new ideal of mystical integration, that of man with God in moments of Vikut, the mystical union, and that of God in man in the form of the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Yeah, at the back. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, I appreciate that you have such a positive stance on, on the influence of Neoplatonism on the Kabbalistic literature. Uh, I think Christian scholarship has often tended to be more exclusive and say that uh, Christianity invented a lot of things and that the influence of Neoplatonism is not as essential. And I appreciate that you have a much more positive. Yeah. My question is, um, in uh, medieval uh, German philosophy, many the Dominican school with the people like Dietrich of Freiburg and Meister Eckhart, uh, also plays a very important role. And I think that they read the same sources, so they also took the term from Plotinus and Copus. But it is almost always uh, associated with. Uh, uh, metaphysics of creation, so the overflow is not within the Godhead, but it is uh, in the foundation of being, of creative being. And now I'm wondering, is this too complete, is, are these two uses of uh, overflow essentially different? So is Kabbalistic, does Kabbalistic uh, literature have a fundamentally different use of that term? Uh, in so because as I understood, understood you, the notion of overflow only concerns the Godhead. Right. Uh, as in uh, Christian theology, it would concern creation as such. So right. I'm wondering how can these two be so different? Thank, thank you very much. So I'll, I'll address both of the comments. I mean, uh, I'm positive about I'm not positive, not negative. This is what uh, the evidence. Uh, suggest, like I said, uh, the literature itself, the Kabbalistic literature itself, is full of Neoplatonic uh, allusions. The terms are there. The problem was that the scholars before me, most of them, not all of them, uh, preferred to interpret what their real true intentions were and offered a different uh, understanding of what they really meant. I know that the, this, this kind of uh, ambivalence towards Neoplatonism was shared also by previous, uh, you know, earlier scholars previous generations of scholars also of Christianity, Christian mysticism. That's for sure, and I know it's something that's shared. Personally, I uh, enjoy reading uh, Neoplatonism, so I do have a positive, I'm not embarrassed, I'm not embarrassed at all by Neoplatonism. I don't share Sholem's uh, <laughs> ambivalence about that or, or his uh, fear of pantheism or anything like that. This is theology. I'm not coming at all from any kind of uh, theological uh, outlook. I mean, I couldn't, from my point of view, that this is what the sources uh, express. Now, I just want to be clear that many of the sources do talk about subdivine overflow. Maybe I wasn't clear about that. The Kabbalists, the Kabbalists combine both 
a, a flow that begins in the divine and then continues to the sub-divine uh, realms. Some of them combine them, some of them see it as something that jumps. You know, it's a different, there's all kind of combinations of this uh, story. And, and like, like I think Maimonides is very similar to the philosophers you mentioned. I mean, Maimonides thinks about uh, overflow as a metaphysical um, element that's not, but he's different because he thinks it's not only uh, relevant for creation, it's also relevant for ongoing uh, explanation of providence and human perfection and prophecy. Now here, this is a whole, there's a whole matter in, in the medieval, both uh, Jewish and uh, Muslim or Arab and Christian philosophy. Uh, the fact that the overflow is key concept in uh, this literature is known and there's no question. I think that the, the Kabbalists came after the, you know, they, they were reading these sources and they offered a kind of uh, interpretation that starts first from the divine and then continues to the lower uh, realms. So that's my kind of uh, reading here. Yes, Shaul, please. Thank you. So I, I want to ask you a question that extends beyond this, into the 16th century um, and even the 18th century. So. I'm not sure if, according to your view of the more deeply embedded Neoplatonic um, influence on these 13th century mystics, whether, whether the Lurianic revolution is more radical or less radical, and, and um, you know, what the implications of that are, because that's basically, um, you know, you'll tell us in a moment, but that's basically that, that 16th century move is moving much more deeply into a kind of non-eminative, Gnostic, rupture model of creation, which in some way makes Devecoup more difficult um, rather, than, rather than more, more than easier. And then how does that translate into the 18th century where you have Hasidut, where all of a sudden it seems like the eminative model is just becomes unreflect, unreflectively accepted, right? Um, and if you're right, I guess, and this, this is a more of an insider baseball, although the whole thing was insider baseball, but this is a little more, as a, if, that, if, if you're right, then you don't need Edel's theory of Abelafian influence, because you would have it already there in the 13th century without Abelafia. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, first about the 16th century, so, so you're perfectly right that Luria's uh, Kabbalah is categorically different from all the Kabbalah that before him. And we don't, fundamentally in Lurianic Kabbalah, you do not have these two things, Shefa and Vikut. He doesn't have Vikut and doesn't have Shefa in the same way. He doesn't have a Holy Spirit that comes really embodies and fuses man in a, in a real way. And, but the other, the, you know, the other 16th century Kabbalists I mentioned even before, Ramak, more, uh, you know, Cordoveo, Vital that he wrote about, and all these folks, they continue the, the movement that I talked about today, and they have very strong understandings of Dvikut and Shefa working together. Luria has a different system altogether, and he takes Kabbalah to a different kind of, uh, you know, uh, development, and then Hasidut in the 18th century, I think, goes back as trying to go back, trying to combine, you know, Ramak, Cordovero, and other Zohar, and other sources with this Lurianic reading, they offer a different kind of uh, 
understanding, you know, he also wrote about about the Tzimtzum and about all these different uh, understandings. Now, I agree with you that the attempt to try to, uh, to uh, you know, to say Abu Lafia is this and the Zohar is this and stuff like that, when you look at it through the lens that I'm trying to offer today, we're talking about something totally different. I mean, what's categorically important for me is the notion of Dvikut and the notion of Ruach HaKodesh of Shefa. Because I don't find those elements before the 13th century in the way they developed in Kabbalah. So it's not, it's not, I'm not emphasizing anymore theosophy in, its, in, a, in the Sfirot. I'm not emphasizing uh, theurgy because it's not, I don't think that's what's important for them. Honestly, I do think that they're, what they care about is the process of the Shefa. Most of the theories are emphasizing the Shefa both for the source of the entire Garden and also the outcome that comes down to man. And all these unifications and all this theory, what we call in our, you know, in our uh, <laughs> you know, field, theurgy of impacting this is just instrumental for receiving this shefa, this overflow to man. And also dvikut, I mean, that's a new idea in my eyes that's uh, developed. If you ask, uh, for example, Professor Idel, he tried to claim that dvikut is something that goes back to rabbinics, and I claim no. Uh, it's true that I claimed about Philo, but Philo is someone that's not in the rabbinic world. So Philo is an example, a great example in which a Jew is synthesizing Judaism with Middle Platonism and reaching a very similar outcome of Kabbalah. So, you know, it's, you, can, you can compare Kabbalah and Philo and see that they're quite uh, similar on these, on these points. Can you also speak to one question? Yeah. I used to be totally about Shalom, but what was his what you talked about theological. Yeah, so theological? They, he, had, he, had, he was allergic. Yeah, let's deal with it. He was allergic to, to Neoplatonism in general. <laughs> but that was like, you know, common at the time. And, and it was a big embarrassment for him. It was a big embarrassment. Let's put it on the table that the Kabbalah was, he couldn't say that it's not there because the evidence is clear. So he, he went out, he started this mission, and his student, Ben Shlomo, did the theological work, because he was you know, a, brilliant, a brilliant theologian, to argue that, that, look, it's all there, but they didn't mean that it's there. Because they had this whole thing about pantheism, as you know. Pantheism says at the end, at the end, the man and God are one. And he wanted to, you know, to emphasize theologically that this is, what, this is what distinguishes Judaism from Christianity. Judaism always maintains, even the most radical mystics, if it's Abu Lafia, if it's this, doesn't matter who the mystic is, the Jewish mystic psychologically cannot go all the way and blur this distinction between God and man. If it's with Unio Mystica, or if it's with some kind of understanding of emanation, they, they have to have some kind of separation. So if you're saying that God's substance is emanated into man, and it's the same, and his, like what I, the way I read Nachmanides, so that's something he can't, he can't accept. And he ignored, totally ignored, the role of Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit in Kabbalah. To the, I, I, I'm looking for a word about it in his entire corpus. And it's amazing. It's a key concept. And he's just ignoring it because how can he deal with this concept? Not only that it's divine substance, it's uh, in most sources identified with the Holy Spirit. I think that was just too much for him because he was also sensitive about separating Judaism from Christianity because his background, as you know, you know, so it's... So, you know, we're, yes, she was.
thank you, Adam, for um, expanding our minds with uh, some amazing um, analysis. Um, I want to come at this from uh, some Muslim perspectives. Right? So as far back as the 10th and 11th century, um, Muslim thinkers are having a problem with this notion of pantheism, that um, God is beyond all attributes. Right? So there's that berm put there that uh, uh, be and it is, is that moment where uh, this ineffable God um, initiates, and, and I think the, the term that's used is uh, mabda, right? so ibda, mabda, uh, and this notion of creation of the first intellect, and from there on, uh, the emanations happen. And if we're reading uh, Henri Corbin, he talks about the drama in heaven, right? Um, is there such a, I mean, you, you're suggesting that there's not that concern in the Kabbalistic thought, one. The, the, second, the second issue that I want to bring up is on slide 11, I think it was, Nachmanides. And you talk, uh, we didn't read it, but there's a discussion there that God sits on the throne and, uh, and then in the steps that emanation happens to the participants in the Shabbat. Okay. That's from the Zohar, yeah. Yeah, from the Zohar. So that's a very drastic shift from that notion of the drama in heaven to a continuous process of emanation and uh, union. So could you uh, touch on those and enlighten us? What you mentioned in the philosophy, we have the Jewish Neoplatonic philosophical tradition and we probably need to make a difference now. If you know, if, if my the if you accept what I'm saying, I hope you know, I name this Kabbalistic uh, Neoplatonism because I think it's a form of Neoplatonism. Um, although they were not advanced students of uh, Neoplatonism, most of them, some of them were actually really knowledgeable of Platon of Neoplatonism and really could teach a course here in Neoplatonism, like uh, Azriel from Girona, but most of them had a very limited general understanding. They just absorbed kind of structures, themes, and stuff like that. They weren't but we do have in the philosophical, uh, you know, Neoplatonic, Neoplatonic Jewish tradition, we do have this kind of discourse there. It's first creation and then emanation, or, you know, and, and they're aware of that. But when you come to the, myst to the mystical or Kabbalistic kind of trend, uh, you know, you don't find too much of that. Most of them are not concerned about that at all. And on the contrary, like uh, in the Zohar, like in Nachmanides, they're stressing the ongoing continuity that this is coming, this one kind of uh, flow that's coming from the crown or from the insof or from the highest source possible in the Godhead to man and embodying man and fusing into man. And this is one uh, entity, one unified being that's carrying the unit, unity of God, of God himself. So, like I said, it's counterintuitive in a way because, you know, if you think about this as a kind of change, you know, it's a flow, it's a movement. But this movement is really just the one God in a form of, of movement. You see, it's not undermining his unity and oneness. So that's why in the Zohar, they see this flow as really the secret of the one. You say, how do, where's the one of this system? The one is in the flow. Okay? Yeah. 
That's so that you can ask that about God. that's God. The flow is God. <laughs> so you can ask that question about he has both aspects in his uh, per, in his personality in uh, the Kabbalistic tradition. I mean, there's something that's there. There's something that's personal, and and this flow is something. There's something very personal about it. Some sources stress the personal aspect of it, that it embodies the collective of the Jewish people. Some talk about it more in a kind of more you know neutralistic way. You can find different uh, versions of this. Yes, then and Sean. I wanted to ask about sources. So how much, you kind of mentioned this briefly now with um, uh, Azriel Mingirona, um, but how much do we know about how, like how much some capitalists were exposed directly to Neoplatonic sources? Because I know of some uh, 16th century capitalists that you see in their writings that they're quoting the Jewish philosophers, Ibn, Ibn Bakuda and Maimonides, but how much were they exposed to the uh, let's say original, or at least the the Arab translations. Right. So there's a lot of work being done uh, over the you know since Sholem on this, including by Idel and other uh, scholars opening this up. Some some of the Kabbalists, especially the Girona Kabbalists, were were acquainted quite acquainted uh, with uh, sources. We know which sources there are, um, but it's not like they're ex experts, you know, advanced experts. In 16th century, I, I mean, if you call Maimonides, and from my point of view, Maimonides is a mixed kind of figure that's also a Neoplatonic uh, thinker, especially because he has, like Al-Farabi, this theory of emanation, and that's Neoplatonic. I mean, that's considered Neoplatonic. In the, so the Kabbalists were well, you know, aware uh, of Maimonides. Like Abulafia, like I mentioned, he was a student. He was, uh, you know, someone that wrote Abulafia, taught Abulafia. All of these, Nachmanides was a giant reader of Abulafia, of uh, Maimonides, sorry. So, I mean, they know Maimonides. They know some sources, Neoplatonic sources. They know some sources by Isaac Israeli. They know some sources here, some sources. They know some sources of Gabirol. They know it's 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 not that we have a clear, you know, source that I can come and say here this is where they learned emanation. Some of them I can see that it's really, you know, they're learning how from Neoplatonic textbook. Some of them are just developing this idea that emanation is in the area and, uh, and it's just something. It's a new idea that came into Judaism through the through the philosophers. And then applied now to reading, and I didn't go into this in this context because the limit of how much I want to go into details, but they're, they're using this now to read Sefer Yitzirah, the book of creation, in which there's some kind of description of something that resembles uh, emanation or is something that's, uh, that's easy to be interpreted as emanation. So it's, it's a process. It's a process that we, we don't fully understand now, but we can talk more about the, the sources, you know. Yes, Chuck. Mike first. Thank you. Oh, that's loud. Thank you, Adam. Um, I can't play insider baseball with you on this, but I can. I want to ask you a question from the adjacent baseball tradition, that is the Neoplatonists themselves. So, when I hear you talk about overflow in the Kabbalist tradition, it sounds like what's often described in. It, this is very often the case when people talk about overflow in Neoplatonism. It, it's like a, 
um, one of those pyramids of champagne, and it just sort of automatically overflows from one level down. Whereas in Platinian uh, uh, emanation, it's very clear that there's a more precise choreography whereby whatever emanates tries to revert to its source right. to see its source. So emanation and self-reversion are the choreography. That's extremely clear in Plotinus at the level of one to intellect. And I think it's important at every level of um, the declension of being, this self-reversion, which I think is important for two reasons. And the, the reason why I'm asking it. One is it, um, it helps explain the declension of being from one to subsequent levels, which might mitigate an anxiety about pantheism, might, because there's a, an account of, while the failure of autoscopy at every level means there's a kind of diminishment of being. The second reason I think it might be important is that then um, on this scheme, in order to climb back up, you have to somehow restage that you have to restage and undo the self-reversion. You have to stage an autoscopy. Um, you have to find out what the appropriate um, higher level is, right. confront it, and then undo it. That might be kind of an opaque way of putting it, but I'm wondering, so do you see in the Kabbalistic sources evidence for the logic of self-reversion, because it's all over Plotinus, and might that mitigate, well, I mean, who knows what's going to mitigate the anxiety that Sholem feels. On the one hand, it feels like Sholem's just embarrassed by the fact that something is in, in it sounds like you're saying it's just, it's the anxiety of influence. Something outside the tradition is influencing, but then it sounds as if like he has a particular unannounced theological um, worry, or maybe it's not even a theological worry, just that this is what keeps Judaism from becoming Christianity. And I just, maybe the last question I'll have is, to what degree is Spinoza a kind of, you know, shadowy figure here? Spinoza is definitely here in the, back, in the background, because he's the pantheist, you know, yeah. pantheist, Jewish pantheist, that went beyond the borders of, uh, you know, the Jewish kind of, uh, you know, that the Jews allowed, you know, that we're allowed to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, what you're asking is there are, there are some uh, Kabbalistic sources that show more sophisticated Neoplatonic kind of knowledge. And in those sources, but they're not many, you can find this kind of more advanced understanding of what, how this emanation happens and how also the, the, the pillar of return is more connected to, you know, the original Plotina kind of uh, uh, understanding. So that's what I was trying to say. It's more, it's more kind of absorbing, uh, I don't know, a simplistic version. And that already happens. This adaptation of more simple forms of Neoplatonism already happens in the, both in the, in the Arab sources and then also in the Jewish sources. So they're not the first to kind of absorb, you know, they're not, they're not doing an advanced seminar, uh, you know, here in, in Neoplatonism. Plotinus. They're reading it in a very general uh, way. But is there, a, is there a notion that the Godhead in flowing out wants, that the Godhead is differentiating in an effort to see itself and, and thereby know itself? Because 
that's at the heart of Plotinus' right. account of how the one becomes other than the one. Right. I'm just curious if what they share uh, with uh, with Plotinus is the understanding, the extent of what you know when you talk about the noose and then the soul and all the different things. The, the way that they participate in the one, how the oneness is critical, right, in this kind of uh, development. But then we have to understand what it means, intra-divine twist on Neoplatonic form of emanation. Because it's different. We're talking about a different theory. So I'm, not talking, I'm talking about a theory that says that really this uh, emanation is not like, it's not, a neo, it's not truly a Neoplatonic theory. Because it's, it's not the same. Because it's saying that in the intra-divine, the earlier, the first phase, you don't have this uh, understanding that you know the third sphira or the tenth sphira are really different, or that the flow that's coming out is really different from God. Mm. It's considered really one. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, so so it's so they're taking this participation in the one, but not really accepting this understanding of what uh, divination is. But they, then they use the divination in that way when they talk about the subdivine levels of emanation. Then they kind of tune back into the more Neoplatonic uh, <laughs> structures that they know. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a development. Now, uh, if you go back to, uh, I don't know, Origenes or, you know, some of, the, some of the Christians that read Neoplatonism used it to develop a philosophical understanding of, you know, of the Trinity. So maybe that could be compared, you see, in a way. Um, and, you know, Sholem, I think Sholem was, he had a fear that this would be interpreted as Spinoza. At the end, some kind of form, this would be taken to saying, ah, these folks are really talking about a Neoplatonic kind of theory that leads us to pantheism, especially some of the sources. I want to talk, I want to stress something, that there's a lot of diversity in these sources. And that's why I brought a few examples, because I wanted to stress there are, there's a lot of diversity. Some sources could, there are some sources that can really bring you to a strong pantheistic understanding, and, and Shal already kind of hinted toward when you move forward, and it becomes more elaborated and more developed, this could, you know, they're much more sophisticated. And also, they're, they're um, readings from, it's not clear yet from where, Neoplatonic, more Neoplatonic kind of ideas, they're coming in from fresh, you know, from uh, new sources in the 16th century, possibly from the Renaissance and stuff like that. So it's a whole, it's a whole new game then. So. Any more comments or questions? Hi, Kimberly. Yeah. Adam, thank you. What a wonderful talk. Um, I just had a very general question about angelology. And I'm just wondering um, to what extent um, angelology and conceptions of angels right. um, are used, are understood as a theological language um, and belief system to express some of these dynamics, for example, with uh, much earlier with Dionysius the Areopagite, we have the notion of angels as directly kind of representing 
and embodying <clears throat> the original brilliance of God in a hierarchical way um, in, in illumination, it, very Neoplatonic. Um, so that's, of course, Christianity much earlier. But I'm wondering if angelology, I know it figures surprisingly in Maimonides, but does it figure here in the thinking of these Kabbalists? And if so, how does it relate to this no, notion of emanation? Great question. I mean, just, just mention before I go into the angels, I mean, um, you have the use that talk about the divine names. So that's another kind of uh, realm that they use. And then they put them together. The divine names are emanating each other. They exist in some kind of uh, hierarchy, very similar to what we find uh, before. About the angels, generally speaking, at the early Kabbalah, um, they keep the angels on the sub-divine realm. They're not absorbed. When I talked about carving this uh, you know, divine realm that absorbs the sfirot, the midot, the you know, different terms or images from echalot, from erkava, from ancient sources, they're very careful at the beginning to not talk about the angels as divine powers or part of the hierarchy of the divine, but they will talk about the merkava. Right, the chariot is, is, but the angels are usually underneath. But then it doesn't mean that later on there won't be pe people that would kind of uh, bring the angels <laughs> up or elevate them back into what I call the the Godhead. It exists. Yeah, it exists later. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Question here. I've uh, been trying to phrase this. this time. Uh, so the general question is just Adam Kadmon. Where is he in this? All right, the, the speculations on, you know, the divine anthropos, uh, and uh, particularly since you see an explosion of, I, you know, speculations around that around the same time as the substantive emanation idea comes in in the 13th century, what's the relationship between that and these speculations on, on the divine? Generally idea? speaking, uh, the theories about Adam Kadmon, I mean, they, they do exist in a preliminary kind of way in 13th century, but they developed in 16th century. And it's much, but I do think that if we look back, because Sholem's process of looking now, and this is, people have been looking at what the Tzimtzum means and what the Davkadmon means, and this, a lot of people have been doing, including Shaul here, that's, you know, written about it. Um, and they've been dealing with Sholem's kind of theological enterprise that tries to explain this as, um, as metaphors or not in a substantive way. So I think we have to go back, I think we have to go back and ask ourselves, what, what do they really mean in, these, uh, in this theory, including this theory? In my eyes, there's no reason to doubt that even those sources are talking about some kind of uh, substantive uh, emanation, if they're talking about. Some of them are very, very explicit about it, and it's clear. I mentioned that before in our conversation. Some of them ignore that and take the discourse to something totally different. So it's a very, it's a quite a complex uh, uh, story that needs, you know, different uh, discussion. I'm, I'm sorry I can't go into details now. I mean, it's, because uh, it takes us to a different period, you know. We didn't talk about it here. Well, thank you, Adam. Thank you. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.